O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your name. For you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the show. We are um, today going to be looking at, at the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 1-15. The gospel is going to be from Luke's gospel, chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, which is the healing of the Gerasene demoniac. And then finally in um, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. We've had a busy week here this week. It's been hot, 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 especially for people that live in the mountains. But I know that like people, my friends and family in Chattanooga and Knoxville and all these other places are just miserably hot. I mean, way worse than we are, so... It's been a good week, though. We've still been out, getting out every day and hiking somewhere and doing something, and so that's been good. Well, I had an interesting encounter this week. We bumped into somebody as we were on the trail, and a woman looked at me and said, Hi, how are you? I said, I'm doing well. How about you? She said, Are you really? And I looked at her like, What does that mean? <laughs> yep, I'm doing fine. Why? She said, Aren't you Mr. Green? I said, I'm, My name's John Green. She said, uh, you Will's dad, right? I am," she said. I, "I worked with him at the winery at Biltmore, and uh, I, you know, followed the the whole situation and everything. So, you know, just really glad that that you're doing well. So it, it was really it's unusual that we just keep bumping into people that that um, knew Will, and we bump into him in the weirdest places. We can bump into him at breweries. We can bump into him on the trail. We can bump into him at the arboretum. So it's been really, you know, kind of a nice thing to be honest with you. It's been nice that God's continued to put people on our path who can, who can, uh, who care for us, <laughs> because they connected with the story, and so that's been really good. So my back seems to be a little bit better. Thanks for those who prayed for that. Um, I did go to the chiropractor this week, so I got some understanding of what's going on. It's a muscle issue. It's muscle spasm that we need to get calmed down, and so he's given me some stretching and things like that to do. The good news is it's not sort of structural in the sense of it's not spinal. So anyway, I'm happy about that. Suzanne and I are looking forward to uh, taking off next week. We're going to be heading over to Boston for about a week and just to kind of decompress a little bit and um, looking forward to that. So we're going to have a good time while we're there. We both love Boston. It's been a place that we've been multiple times in the past, and uh, it's just always been a favorite place for us. So we're looking forward to going there for about a week almost. So I'll still do the podcasts. Um, I've already I, the the daily ones, so you'll know I've do, I do those in advance, um, and so I'm I'm quite a ways ahead on the daily ones. But the Sunday ones, I'll I'll make sure that they're done before we head out of town. So anyway, let's get started on this. So we're looking at the story of Elijah, and it's just the end of the story of Elijah, really. It's, it's after Elijah has gone. Uh, you know, the problem is, I, let's just start there. So the basic problem in Elijah's day is the, the kingdoms have been separated since the time right after Solomon into the northern kingdom of Israel slash Samaria and then the, um, the southern kingdom of Israel slash Judah. That one's based in Jerusalem. So the other one was based on the northern end, it was ultimately overtaken by the Assyrian Empire, and, and their strategy for conquered peoples was to disperse them among the peoples. And so these are the lost tribes, and that's who Elijah is a prophet to that northern kingdom. And at the time, it's led by Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of a Sidonian king. You'll, you'll be familiar with Tyre and Sidon, so Sidonians are people from Sidon. So they were Baal worshippers there. And so her father was the king 
in Sidon, and he was a Baal worshiper, and she brought Baal worship into that northern kingdom uh, in, in a dramatic, you know, sort of upheaval kind of a way, and her, her husband was weak, and so she actually controlled the throne. And, and so what, what has happened is, is that Elijah watched all the people go after these they hedged their bets, really. They they followed Yahweh at some level, but then they hedged their bets, and, and they were following Baal as well. Baal was a fertility god, so, it, so agriculturally, Baal was an important entity if you um, wanted um, rain and things like that. So um, what had happened was it got so bad that there were—Baal always is accompanied by Asherah, which is his consort, and so Baal's a fertility god, the Asherah poles— are phallic symbols that that those are the the forms of worship for Asherah. And so anyway, they brought this in. The people have followed after it. Then finally, uh, Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel, and and he wins and puts all them to death and then tells the people, you got to choose. In the same way that that Moses did at the end of his life, in the same way Joshua did at the end of the book of Joshua, they said, you have to choose between which God you will serve. And so they said, we will follow him. How, so that that's the backdrop, and now here we go. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of those, one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to kill you. But well, what's interesting is she invokes the gods. May the gods do more to me, to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Well, he has just defeated those gods, the ones she's invoking here that says, you know, if I don't get revenge on you, then they can come and do to me what you did to them and more also. Well, ultimately, that's what happens. <laughs> but what's amazing is Elijah has just defeated those gods shown them up for what they are, which is false gods, nothing at all. So what's Elijah's response? Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He's just defeated those gods, but now it's personal, and he's, a, he's afraid of Jezebel, and he runs. He leaves the northern land, and he goes down to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So he's down in the southern kingdom, and he left his servant there, but then he went into the wilderness a day's journey and came and sat down under a broom tree. He abandoned the people and abandoned the land. You can't do that. You can't do that if you're a prophet. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's a great Jewish scholar, wrote a book called The Prophets, and in that book, one of the things that he, he, he does is define the task of a prophet, and the task of a prophet is to identify with the Lord's agenda in such a way that he communicates the anger or pleasure, whichever it is, of God to the people. But he sees clearly God's objective. Objective. He's able to stand on the outside and see clearly and in agreement with God what he's saying. And at the same time, he's to be an intercessor for the people, and he's their representative to God. So he's God's representative to the people, but he's also to be God's to be people's representative before God. They need intercession. That's what Moses did so well until he blew it. Finally, by saying, must we bring water out of the rock, you rebels? So he distanced himself from the people and aligned himself completely with God. When he, when he said, we will do this, you are rebels. He, he failed. And that's the reason he's disqualified from leading the people into the land. Here, Elijah disqualifies himself by leaving the land and the people. He's already walked away from them in his heart and his mind. 
So it, it's a problem. And then it's what makes Jesus ultimately the only redeemer who will uh, get the job finished. And so at the at the moment of his greatest trial, his greatest temptation, when he's on the cross and the people there, they, they're, they're crucifying him. And so he's in intense pain, but he's also been abandoned by everybody who had been with him. And the people who are there are mocking him, spitting on him, beating him, all this other stuff. And so the, the, the highest expression of Jesus's faithfulness to the prophetic call that I just defined for you from Abraham Joshua Heschel is his prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So even in this moment of incredible pressure, Jesus passes the test. That's, that, that is supremely the passing of the test. And so Elijah fails. He absolutely fails. He, so he goes into the, into the wilderness, a day's journey, and he asks that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And then, behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So Elijah's just laying down ready to die here. I mean, you could say probably that he, he was deeply depressed uh, to make it a psychological issue, but, but he's just laying down ready to die. So the angel has him rise and eat again a second time, and he, he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And so then what, what you get is that he comes to Mount Horeb. Well, where's Mount Horeb? Okay, it's the same as Mount Sinai. It's the place where Moses had the theophany with the burning bush that spoke with him. And then it's the place where the entire nation had the theophany at the giving of the law in Exodus 20. So this is an important place. It's in the wilderness, however. It's outside the land. But there's a big contrast between here and the the speaking to Elijah and the speaking to the people. In the, the... prior event at Sinai, then what God did was he, he came in power. And, and this, so there was this, there was a, a, a thunder and lightning and all the other stuff that accompanied that. There's this, this display of divine greatness there that, that caused the people to greatly fear. And God said, you need to consecrate yourselves and nobody should touch this mountain. So when he comes to the mountain, he comes to a cave and lodges in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Well, good for you. Everybody else stinks, and here I am. I've been jealous for the Lord. I've been faithful. They've been terrible. And now they want to kill me. Well, who was they who choose to seek his life? Well, it was one person, right? It was Jezebel. So they seek my life to take it away. Well, if that's the problem, then why did you go out into the wilderness and tell God you were ready to die? Well, you obviously weren't ready to die because you didn't want Jezebel to take your life. And so you're like the Philippian jailer at some level. is just that you'd rather have God deal with it than, than, the, than Jezebel and her people because it won't go you know, as smoothly, let's say. So then he said, he, the Lord, uh, go out and stand uh, on the mount before the Lord. 
and the Lord passed by, which is exactly the same things that happened with Moses, right? And so God says, you hide in the cleft of the rock, and I'll go by, and I'll put my hand over and cover you because you can't see my face and live. So the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. It's before the Lord. So can you imagine standing there with Elijah and seeing this strong wind tearing the mountains, breaking in pieces the rocks, and the Lord's not in that? And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. I mean, contrast that with, go back and read Exodus 19 and see the, the power on display there. But here, there's power on display, but the Lord's not in the power. And then there's the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak because he needed to hide his face because he didn't want to see the face of the Lord and die, right? Thought he wanted to die. He didn't. That's really not the issue. I mean, he, he wanted to die rather than get killed by Jezebel, but he didn't want to die. <clears throat> That's the whole reason he goes out into the wilderness. So here he hides his face in his cloak so he doesn't die if he sees the face of the Lord. And then he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So the, the reminder is, is if you look at Exodus 33, 20 to 23, Moses has asked to see the Lord's glory. And the response is, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Elijah knows this, and so he covers his face in a cloak when he hears this voice. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, He, he didn't pass the test either time. He should have known <laughs> when he hears, what are you doing here, Elijah? It would probably be a good idea if I gave a different answer, but not Elijah. Nope. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel <clears throat> have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your pillars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazazel. Hazael to be king over Syria. And so then he's going to anoint, you know, a prophet to take his place and a commander for the army. So he's given all these tasks. So so Elijah was Elijah a failure? No, but he failed. He 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 wasn't the redeemer. He couldn't be the redeemer in the same way Moses couldn't be the redeemer because they both forsook the people. They they both said I'm alone. And they aligned themselves completely with God in a way that Jesus never did. He aligned himself with the purposes of the Father, but, but that prayer from the cross is, again, the very proof that Jesus never stopped aligning himself with sinful humanity. And then ultimately, we know that he aligns himself with sinful humanity by taking on our sin on the cross and in, in taking on not only our sin but our punishment for sin, and that is death. So Jesus saw death so that we never would, so that we would not pass, so that we would pass through judgment into life. So it, Elijah failed the test. Now, uh, you can say that without calling him a failure. You can say that Elijah did a great many wonderful things, and there's a, you know, and he did. There's a reason he and Moses are the two representatives of the old covenant who show up at uh, the transfiguration. And it's because they were both at some level on the cusp of delivering the people 
and then failed because they sinned. Jesus never did. He didn't sin, and he didn't forsake the people. He didn't throw them under the bus before the Father. And so they need Jesus to complete this task as much as you and I need Jesus to complete this task because they didn't finish the race perfectly. And so they need a Savior no less than we do, and they are there representing everybody who came before Jesus to, to say, we need a Savior, please, please finish this thing, and, and they encourage him in that. So that's John talking about what I believe is actually happening at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then, and then Jesus will say things like, there's nobody greater than John who has ever lived, so he holds him up above Moses, Abraham, Elijah, all the prophets. And yet, he says, Jesus is very clear about this, because yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, that's, you know, encouraging. <laughs> because he's saying greater things, you know. He, he's saying that, that you will be greater. And it's because we have a greater and more complete understanding of the revelation of God and how God actually works because we can testify to Jesus. So it makes our testimony greater and better. It's why that uh, Priscilla and Aquila, for instance, in, in Ephesus have to have to listen to Apollos, who's a wonderful apologist and a wonderful preacher, but he lacks the understanding of Pentecost. He lacks the understanding of the outpouring of the Spirit. He only knows the baptism of John. It's the reason when Paul goes to Ephesus, he runs into some people, and he, he's got some questions like, tell me about your baptism, and all they say is, well, we were baptized into the baptism of John, and he said, you weren't baptized into the Holy Spirit. They said, we were never told about the Holy Spirit. He says, come here, let me pray for you. And then they get the fullness of the Spirit. So it, it's there's a difference between the ministry after Pentecost and the ministry prior to Pentecost. And, and he said, Jesus says it's greater. And, and why is it greater? Because it's a fuller testimony. It's a fuller understanding of God because we're testifying about Jesus and we're testifying about the Holy Spirit. So we have a greater testimony. And, and so even as great as Moses and Elijah are, you are considered greater because you have the full testimony. But the thing is, you have the responsibility <laughs> of that full testimony as well. It, 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 there's a responsibility that goes along with the blessedness. And so the responsibility is we need to know it and share it. So in the gospel, so what we see is, is, is that, that um, Elijah runs when she invokes the gods that he's just defeated. He runs and he flees the scene. What does Jesus do? That's what we're going to see in the gospel today. What we're going to see is it, Jesus goes on the offensive. He leaves the land but for the purpose of confronting the gods somewhere else. So they, they sail to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So they cross over, and they go to the land of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. So he steps out onto the land, and as he does, these demonic entities come to him. They approach him there. So there's an, there's a, he's on the offense— He's taking it to them. He's, he's essentially leaving the 99 behind temporarily in order to go save the one, which is what he says is what he's going to do. So here he goes to the one. He goes to this guy, this man from the city who had many demons. And, and it's the demons who bring this guy there to approach Jesus. 
for a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So you got this naked guy who lives among the tombs. I mean, as I've said this before, from a Jewish perspective, this is like um, a nightmare for ritual purity. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. So what what does he think? I mean, he's making a confession that Jesus is son of the most high God. So when you say most high God, there's a comparative implied in that statement. And the most high God would be the, the God of gods. And so when Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, it acknowledges there are other kings and other lords, but Jesus is king over them. So the most high God acknowledges at some level there are other little g gods, and this one that Jesus represents, that he's the son of, is the most high God. So they acknowledge, that he acknowledges that this, um, this pecking order, and he says, I beg you, do not torment me. There's a lot of begging that happens in this, by the way. So first it's the man. And then he, for it, what it says is, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So the tormenting is not the man speaking, it's the demon speaking, and so is the one that calls him the Most High God. And we know that because we see it over and over again in, in the Gospels, that these things, these demonic entities, recognize Jesus, and they recognize his power. And in, in Capernaum, for instance, in the synagogue, Jesus casts out a demon from a man, and, and that becomes something that the people see and say, what kind of power and authority does he have? Where does it come from? And that becomes, you know, then kind of the talking point over time is to say, well, he does this by the power of Beelzebub, which is the Lord of the Flies. So he, he does this by the power of a demon, and then Jesus has to say, it doesn't make any sense. Logically, it makes no sense at all that I would cast out Satan by the finger of Satan. So here, it, we're told, in addition, Luke tells us, for many a time it had seized him, it being the demon, him being the man. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So there's this powerful force in this demon that works and operates through this man. And sometimes, you know, it, it's a scary thing when somebody has this kind of demonic thing because they're, they're, they have superhuman power. And this thing would sometimes drive him out into the desert, even though he was, un, he was under guard and bound with chains and shackles. Now, those same terms also fit Paul and Silas when they're in prison in Philippi. An earthquake comes, sets them free from their guard and the chains and shackles that have bound them in this place. So Jesus then asked him, the man, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So, so this man's not even interacting with Jesus directly. It's the demons through him that are interacting with Jesus. This word legion, it, it just comes from a reference to a Roman military regiment that varied in soldier strength from about 4,000 people to 6,000 people. I mean, it's a huge number even as the purpose of Roman legions was to enforce the will of the emperor, the goal of these multiple spirits was going to be to carry out the devil's will of bringing pain, destruction, and chaos to humans. So the, the, the people in the land of the Gerasenes, which was also known as the Decapolis or the Ten Cities, it was one of those ten, was a place that was pagan. It was completely pagan over there. This is not Jewish territory at all. We don't know if this man might be Jewish or not. We have no earthly idea. We're not told anything. And so what do they do? They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. 
into the abyss. So what is that? That word is, is uh, Abaddon. It's, it's the, the place that in Revelation and uh, also in Jude we, and in Peter, First Peter, we see that's where Satan and his angels are confined is in the abyss. And so what they're begging for is for Jesus not to command them. So, so he begged not to torment them. They beg not to be thrown into the abyss. And so the abyss is this place where, where those fallen angels are kept until the end of time. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Again, ritual purity. Jesus is among a naked guy bleeding in the tomb. So he's among dead people, which is a big time no-no. And then also, now we get pigs coming in. And, and they, the demons, begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So what's the upshot of all this, right? So the herdsmen, those who were looking after the pigs, saw what had happened, and they fled and told it in the city and the country. I mean, they spread the word everywhere they could possibly spread it. You won't believe what happened. Everybody there had to know who this guy was. They had to have known about the man in the tombs who had the demonic spirits. And you know what? It's safe enough if he's there in the, in the tombs or he's out in the desert. Not a danger to anybody at all. We've kind of confined all that stuff over there and confined it to him. And so they're now telling it everywhere. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the men from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So remember, Elijah was afraid, the demons are afraid, and now the people are afraid. Well, good for you. Why are you afraid? You've seen power. You've known the power of these demonic entities for all these years. And now here's the guy sitting there in his right mind and clothed. And they were afraid. They were more afraid now than they were when he was naked, shackled, changed, guarded, and breaking those shackles and chains. They were more afraid now at what they see than they were then. They had it under control at some level. They had, they had isolated the problem. Now, we don't know what to think. So those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So they told them, Jesus rebuked these demons and sent them out and sent them into the pigs, and now they went in and drowned the pigs. So now he's getting to our pockets, right? I mean, so, so the, the, the pigs were a source of income, and now that, that's gone. It's no longer possible. So it, it sort of reminds me at some level, that some, of the, some of the reaction to that could be because they would have known that the Jews didn't have anything to do with swine. So in the movie The Jerk with Steve Martin in it from a million years ago, remember there's a guy who, who has chosen uh, Steve Martin's character at random out of the phone book to kill him. And he's working in a gas station. So he, he gets, guy gets on the hill across from the gas station and starts shooting. Well, he, he misses him, keeps missing him and missing him, and he's shooting. Um, first, he starts, I can't remember which came first. It's either he shot up a Coke machine and there were cans in there, or he shot up the oil cans. And so the, the character is convinced that he hates cans. Here, it could be, well, Jews hate pigs, right? So that's why the demons went into the pigs. They could, that could have been the way they thought about it, but, but it was their economic livelihood in some cases. And so they told how he had been healed. Then all the people in the surrounding country of the garrison, so all these people, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. 
They had isolated the problem, kept the man in the tombs. Jesus is not going to be bound and isolated in the same way. And so they have great fear because they know that the power in Jesus is greater than the power that had kept this man under its influence for all these years. And so now they recognize the great power in Jesus, and they don't want any part of it. Because they don't know whether it's benign or not. So they, they ask him to leave. So he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God's done for you. In other words, be a witness here in this place. Go to your home. So he had a home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So Jesus went away, left the 99 behind, the Israelites behind, went to get this one man and rescue him. And then made him stay there as a witness. Because you know how human nature is. You know, within a few days, they would have been denying that the man was really all that bad. And that it was all that big a deal. Or they might even argue that, well, you know, maybe that was just a dream. No, Jesus said, you stay here and you be among them as a witness to me and to what I've done. Um, What we do know about this area is is that after within the first two uh, generations after this there was a significant christian community here in in the country of the gerasenes so that this man and his evangelism and then we've got to believe that that they went back and, and he had to have known the rest of the story about the crucifixion the resurrection and the outpouring of the spirit at pentecost but what we do know is is, is that because of that witness there was a church there immediately uh, upon um, the the outpouring of the Spirit. So so we know that that man's witness bore fruit. And so we know that there was a Christian community in a place that was not Jewish, um, and it had to largely be because of this man. Jesus came as a demonstration to those people who were near, just across the Sea of Galilee, just like he did when he went to Samaria uh, in John 4. So he, so he provided a witness for this. So what we see is is that Elijah... When he's threatened by these these gods, these demonic entities, Baal and and the demonic entities that are associated with that, and and anything that claims to be a god that isn't Yahweh is a demon because it's making a claim to be something that it's not. It's making a claim to be greater than it is. So here, these demons don't make that claim to Jesus because they know that it's a nonsense claim when it comes to Jesus. So, So what happens, though, is Elijah runs from the threat that Jezebel makes when she invokes the gods he flees the land leaves the place and and there was a belief and there's a true belief actually it's 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 something people should believe is that they're territorial gods and if that goes back to psalm 82 psalm 86 deuteronomy 31 that when the after babel that god put rulers over these areas these um heavenly rulers and so god is over all and and that's why satan can offer jesus all the kingdoms of the earth because he does have them under his control and so that the language is correct so when he flees the gods jesus goes on the offense and goes directly into the belly of the beast as it were and goes directly to the most um powerful manifestation of those gods that that you could see and that's this one with legion. Like I said, the legion is from from that Roman military regiment that that could have between 4 and 6,000 uh people in it, soldiers in it. And so it it's and their job was to enforce the will of the emperor. So these multiple spirits 
had a job given to them by a greater power, but now they recognize Jesus is the Son of the Most High God because they know ultimately the truth. So Jesus goes on the offense. That should tell us what we who have been filled with his Spirit need to do. And when he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, he's saying go into those places that are controlled by these other things, these other spiritual forces, and proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God and bring it. Bring it to those places and do so without fear. So in the epistle today, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So what's, what's going to be revealed? Faith. So the law comes before faith. So the, the law holds us captive, keeps us imprisoned until faith comes and sets us free. But, it, but faith has to have a content. Right? So he says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Do you know who else had to be justified by faith? Yeah, Elijah. Because he couldn't be justified on his own, as we just saw, because he abandoned the post. Just as Moses had to be disqualified, needed a Savior, had to be justified by faith in that Savior. Abraham, how was he justified? By faith, clearly by faith. And so Paul's making that same argument here. Yes, the law was given, and the law was given because there wasn't faith. So it had to be this sort of works-based thing, which was always still based in faith, because you had to believe that what you did mattered to God one way or another, good or bad. And if it was bad, then, then you had to deal with that, and you had to have faith that God accepted your sacrifice, and you were restored to relationship with him through the sacrifice. So he says, now that faith has come, though, we're no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. So what does it mean to be a child of God? What does that mean? It means you've been filled with his spirit. It means that your sins are covered over. It means that you're covered in the blood of Christ and your sins are forgiven, put away as far as the east is from the west. Does that mean that you don't any longer need to confess and repent? The answer is no. You absolutely still continue to need to confess and repent because we continue to sin. And we need to agree with God on what that is. And we need to agree with God on on the severity of the matter. And that's kind of the thing Suzanne and I were talking today. We were out walking, and and one of the things that I would say is, is that, 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 you know, I can remember spending a whole lot of my life thinking it was really unfair that God disqualified Moses from leading the people into the land because he sinned one time. Well, the reality is, is that what that shows is that I don't think, I don't see sin in the same way God does. I don't think it ought to disqualify him. God did. Well, who's got to get that right, me or God? No, it's me. I've got to realize how big a deal sin actually is. And I think generally we don't because we want to kind of excuse it and we want to say, no, 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 it's not fair that, that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Well, the punishment could be death at that moment, but it wasn't. So that's the thing we need to understand is how serious a matter sin is. And, and that's the reason that, that he says you're sons of God through faith. Your sins have been forgiven, and now you can know about grace. And you have to experience grace over and over again because you sin over and over again. We, we, you know, and, and the fact is, we don't even—the things that God thinks are sin, you know, we want to pass over. We want to believe what, what, you know, 
seems reasonable, which is, I haven't committed adultery because I haven't slept with another woman. Well, Jesus says, if you looked on one with, with lust in your heart, oh, I've never killed anybody. Well, have you ever hated your brother? Yeah, stop it. You know, that's kind of the way I want to respond to that. So, but, but that's the point, is he's calling us to a level of holiness that we don't even think about. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've put on Christ. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the Holy Spirit within you. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. I was looking at some stuff to, this week about Talmud, actually, and one of the things they talk about is a new convert to Judaism is considered a new person. They're, they're considered to no longer actually have the family they had before that. Their new family, they're, they're, they're brought into the family of God. And so they're not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. They're just Jews. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. He says, that's the way it works in the kingdom. You leave everything else behind. You come into a new family. And you leave all those other identities in the past. Now, we're big, big, big into identity right now. We're big into identity of, uh, of sexual orientation or whatever, or, or, or color, creed, whatever. We're big into those things. But that shouldn't infect the church. Because he says, look, leave all those other identities behind. You're one in Christ Jesus. One in Christ Jesus. One. You're not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. None of those other distinctions, those other identities actually matter anymore. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So he takes him all the way back to Abraham, who was justified by faith, and said, that's who you are. You're Abraham's offspring. You're the offspring of those who, who are heirs according to the promise of God by faith in the God who made the promise. And But that has an other implication as well. It's the implication that I just showed you, the difference between Elijah and Jesus. And what it says is Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's the job, and it, it, it's acknowledging that we're bringing the kingdom of God, kingdom of the Most High God, by proclaiming the Son of the Most High God into places that are already ruled by other spiritual powers. And we're ignoring those kingdoms. We're fighting a spiritual battle when we do it. We need to keep that in mind. We are fighting a spiritual battle, but we're not going to be like Elijah. We're not going to be afraid of those gods. We're going straight at them. And we're going to have courage because we have the power of the Holy Spirit and we know about the resurrection of the dead and the certainty of the life of the world to come. So we have no fear because we fear has to do with judgment. And if we're in Christ Jesus, if we belong to him, if we are children of the most high God, then we have the power that Jesus has to go and proclaim in his name. Have no fear, brothers and sisters. Have no fear at all. Rest in the certain knowledge of the resurrection and its implications for you and go and live and rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit in the same way that that man who had been healed did in his own place. Go home and proclaim.